Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series in James. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Thank you, Travis. Yeah, you guys could be seated. And we're going to be in James, that passage that Travis just read. Before I get there, just got a couple housekeeping items to talk about. Uh, I want you guys to pray for one of our missionaries, actually with Chris Star Missions, I believe. Is that right, Kyle? They just had baby Lucy, Andrew and Abby Brockelman. So if you guys think about them, this is their very first little baby that they've had. Um, they're not too far away in Dallas, Fort Worth area. So, so pray for them when you think about it. Little baby Lucy is as cute as they come. So when you think, when you think of her, just lift up all of our missionaries, including, including the Brockelmans and their entire family, as well as Chloe from this morning. Uh, other thing, I just want to say a big thank you to our crews that have been working basically 24-7 around here. Bill Thrutchley, Troy Cooper, of course. We've got a brand new coffee bar out in the foyer finally, and that's going to be up and running for, for weeks and weeks to come in the future. So I would encourage you to come on in earlier to the services, grab some coffee, mingle, stay out there if you want. You can bring coffee into the sanctuary here. It just will repent and confess to Jacob that we spilled, and it'll be okay. It's, it's really okay. The floor cleans up messes easily. So then when the sermons get dry and boring, Ted Miller's like, man, I need some coffee, Verweel. Keep it coming. Let's go. And in the vein of everybody else, all these greatest of all time goats retiring, I'm here to announce my retirement from pastoral ministry this morning. Uh, Tom Brady's gone. Rogers is probably gone. I just figure it's the right thing to do. So I'm not retiring, but I'd like to, no, I'm not the greatest of all time either. I'm going to be Humble, receive the, okay, somebody just focus here. We're going to talk about <clears throat> James chapter 1 this morning, and um, this, yeah, this is a book that just continues to step on our toes. Uh, from week to week, we're probably going to take just about 10 or, 10 or 11 weeks to go through this book. Um, it, is, it is full of wisdom, practical application. James calls us to an authentic faith. Sometimes he's harsh with Christians. He calls it how it is, and he calls us to a higher lifestyle to represent Christ in ways that are sometimes painful. And, uh, and this, but it's a, it's a great book that we need to pay attention to. What would you do if you went home after church this morning, this afternoon, and found a burglar ransacking your house? Interesting thing happened. Uh, old lady, older lady went home from church one Sunday in this area here, came home to find just that. Burglar had broke into her house, was going through all of her stuff. She didn't know what to do or what to say. All she could think about was the passage that was being preached that day. She says, hey, stop. Acts 2.38. Immediately the guy stopped what he was doing and just froze. A few minutes later, the police officer pulled up, and, and that burglar was in about that same position he was when the lady first yelled at him told him to stop what he was doing. And as he was cuffing the burglar, he simply said to him, what's the deal? Uh, this old lady quoted a Bible verse to you. Why didn't you do anything? Why didn't you try to run? And he said, a Bible verse? I didn't hear anything about a Bible verse. All I heard was, I've got an ax and two thirty-eights." <laughs> Only in Oklahoma. Can you say that and get a good, good reaction? We're going to talk about the Word of God. 
and the scripture in our lives this morning. Um, doctrinally, when you talk about God's word, there's, there's probably four main related themes that are tied to it. We talk about the word of God that is so important for our Christian lives. Typically, theologically and doctrinally, we talk about the inspiration of God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that God's word is inspired or God-breathed. God used very fallible, flawed, imperfect, sinful people to write down his words of scripture. Even though they're fallible, he is not. Even though they're their words, they're also God's words coming to us through them. So we talk a lot about the inspiration of scripture. We also talk about the inerrancy of scripture, that in the original autographs, when they were first penned, all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is without error. It will not disagree in one point. It will not uh, communicate anything that is not true to the faith. It is inerrant, uh, without error. We talk about the sufficiency of scripture. Second Peter, verse one, chapter one, verse three says that God has given us everything that we need to live a godly life that would ultimately please him. If we believe in the sufficiency of scripture, we believe that we can live a life that glorifies God if we had nothing else besides God's word. That what he has given to us in his written revelation is sufficient for us to live a godly life, empowered by his word. We also talk about the authority of scripture. And when you read these pages, it comes with the authority, sovereignty, the power, and the lordship of Christ, who is the sovereign God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He can demand of us because he is authoritative. A Christian without the word of God is like a farmer without a fence or a body without an immune system. It's like Captain America without a shield. The things that God has ingrained and given to us for our protection, our growth in the Christian life. He has painted before us and passed down to us that we might be pleasing to him. The scriptures are to the Christian what the flux capacitor is to Doc Brown's DeLorean in his time machine. It's the exhaust valve that is on the, the Death Star. If you take that thing out, everything else explodes. It is what Patrick Mahomes is to the Kansas City Chiefs. If you take him away, he is not, it is not the same team. When something happens to those components, when something happens to the word of God in Christians, we do not have the power, we do not act the way that we should, we do not say the things that we should. Our hearts are in a wrong place without his word. Just like last week we talked about the journey of the authentic Christian is a gradual path of being emptied, so too the life of the authentic Christian is a path that is guided by the word of God regularly. So we're gonna continue our series on, on James that I've entitled Authentic Faith. What we said last week is authentic faith is not about you, and so get over yourself. This week what I'm saying is authentic faith is all about Christ and we learned all about God through his word, and so we need to be in it on a daily and on a regular basis. Authentic Christians are people who live by, in, and through the word of God. When we let it penetrate our hearts, it will come out of our mouths. We will live truth and we will speak truth if we are diligent to hang on to his word. And we're gonna see three things as we go through the end of James chapter one this morning. I'm gonna ask you to accept the word humbly, examine yourself consistently, and apply the word compassionately. 
James gives us three things in James 1, 19 through 27 about the word of God and the life of the authentic Christian. He asks us to accept the word humbly, examine yourself consistently, and apply the word compassionately. I find it very interesting that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, to the, as a response to Satan for every single one of those temptations, guess what he quotes? Scripture. He quotes the word of God. If scripture is good enough to fight off the temptations for the Son of God, it's good enough for us to live a Christian life. Spurgeon's got a great thought on the Word of God. He says that a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to a Christian who isn't. I love that. Stay in your Word. Wear out these pages. They will be life to you. Seek after the wisdom that is provided through God's Word. Look down at your text, James 1. Let's talk first about accepting the Word humbly. I'm going to go back up to verse 19, read through verse 21. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That's the one time that you're going to read that word in the New Testament, rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. souls. Remember what we've been saying about James. Throughout this letter, James often appeals to wisdom literature, and he sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes. He sounds a lot like Proverbs, and there's reasons for that, but probably one of the strongest reasons is James was the brother of Jesus. He uses wisdom in his teaching because he was around wisdom. Jesus was the perfect embodiment of wisdom, but also in the Gospels, Jesus talks through these short, pithy parables as he is, as we read wisdom in Proverbs, so we get wisdom from Jesus, and, and we're getting here in James, wisdom from James. Jesus says stuff like, take the log out of your eye before you look at the speck in your brother's eye. He says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Where your heart is, there your treasure is also. These are all little short wisdom sayings. And James 1.19 is the one wisdom saying in this book that guards everything else. It's the theme. It gives us the outline for the rest of the book of James. So in James 1.19, we read about three things, being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Being quick to hear will take us all the way through chapter two of James. Being slow to speak will outline, and we'll look at James chapter 3 to explain that phrase and what it means. Being slow to anger will take us from James 4, verse 1, all the way through chapter 5, verse 6, almost to the end of the book. And remember, we defined wisdom a certain way last week. We said, wisdom is the ability to perceive the true nature of a situation and apply the will of God to it. James is giving us wisdom, which is the true nature to perceive a situation, understand a situation, and apply the will of God to it. So let me ask you a question. In an era of media manipulation, political propaganda, is there a need to perceive the true nature of things in our world today? Is James just as applicable for us today as it was thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago when James first penned this? Would your social media account be any different if before you posted something on Instagram or Facebook, you read to yourself James 1.19? Would our nation, would churches across this nation be any different 
If we kept this verse in the forefront of our minds when we interacted with people, with other Christians and people we don't agree with, James 1.19 is loaded with wisdom for our culture, and I can't barely think of anything that is more countercultural than James 1.19. Our culture says this, be quick to speak and be slow to listen. James says, be slow to speak and be quick to listen. Listen to these Proverbs, Proverbs 10, verse 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. If you talk enough, you will sin eventually. You will transgress God's law, but wherever, whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Listen to Proverbs 13, verse three at the beginning. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. Proverbs 1, verse five, let the wise hear and increase in learning. Jesus often put it this way. Remember, James sounds a lot like Jesus. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. James' statement is is so memorable here because of the sharp contrast, the pace, the things that he's talking about. The ears should be quick. The mouth should be slow. One action is a rapid pursuit. The other action is a measured hesitation. I love what one man said. God gave us two ears and one mouth, and we should use them proportionately. Listen twice as much as you speak. Skip down to verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness. You might underline that phrase, receive with meekness. The implanted word which is able to save your souls. Uh, Therefore, put away is not really a good translation. The way we should read this, it's a uh, past tense aorist participle. So we should read something like, having put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word of God. Uh, James is probably picking up on Jeremiah 31, the new covenant promise to Israel that God will put the law within us and he will actually write it upon our hearts. But notice that James doesn't just say to receive the word, he says receive it a certain way, receive it meekly, receive the word humbly. And humility is many things in scripture and there's many things that it isn't. Humility for a Christian is not being insecure, indecisive, or inactive. Humility for a Christian is total dependence on God. It is being unconcerned about power and prestige. It is unquestioning acceptance of God's word. At its most basic level, we would say that humility is God-centeredness while pride is self-centeredness. And I love how one theologian puts this. He says the basic human problem is that everyone believes that there is a God and he or she is it. True humility exposes our smallness. And at the very same time, it exhibits God's greatness. We are humbled by God when we see ourselves compared to him, his almighty power, his sovereignty over all things. We receive his word as humble servants because there is no other way to receive it before an almighty, omniscient, omnipotent God. James asks us to do one thing with the word. He says, accept it humbly, receive it meekly so that we might apply it to our hearts and to our lives. Number two, examine yourself consistently. Not only do we receive God's word humbly and meekly, 
but we also examine ourselves consistently. I find it to be a pattern in my life that the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize how holy he is and how much work he still needs to do in my heart, how much growth still needs to happen as a Christian for me. Uh, Look at verse 22. Be doers of the word, not only hearers who deceive themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently, looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now up to this point in James, he's used several phrases to describe Scripture, God's Word. Back in verse 18 of chapter 1, he talks about Scripture as the Word of Truth. Later on in this context, he talks about the implanted word of God, the seed that he has implanted within our hearts. It's a metaphor coming from, from the farming world, that the word of God works just like a seed is put in the ground. If, a, if the rains come, if the soil is soft and the conditions are right, it will produce, it will grow. The word of God will produce and will grow when the conditions are right. He talks also about the word as law, Chapter 1 will talk about the perfect law, the law of liberty, which seems like an oxymoron, right? Laws are something that restrain and constrict us, but liberty is something that frees and unrestrains us completely. There's, it's almost like a, it doesn't make sense to have a law of liberty. It suggests that God's word frees us from ourselves, frees us from our own wicked ways and our sinful ways when we allow God to be God and understand that we are not. Chapter two is gonna talk about the royal law or the king's law as God's word. But by far the the strongest metaphor in these verses is that James is, is comparing the word of God to a mirror. We all look intently into a mirror when we read the words of scripture. Um, one of my favorite marriage quotes goes something like this. One of the best wedding gifts that God gave us is a full-length mirror called our spouse. Had there been a card attached, it would have said, here's to understanding what you're really like, right? Nobody knows us like our spouse. Nobody knows our, our weaknesses, our frailties, the things that trip us up in life quite like them. But the word of God is even deeper and stronger than that. It's piercing to the joints and marrow, to the heart of man. What James means here by using this description, God's word is a mirror, is that the word is for self-examination, not for friend interrogation. The word of God is first for self-examination, not for friend interrogation. Jared, that was a great sermon. I'm gonna send it to my cousin in Wisconsin. I love that sermon. The whole time you were preaching it, I was thinking about my daughter or my son. Look in the mirror first. James says, apply it to your heart first before you look and apply it to anybody else. When you read the word, you're not looking at other people. You're looking at yourself in a mirror. That way the Bible won't be trivialized or weaponized. It will first be internalized spiritually. Notice some of the items in your text. Verse 23, 
For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. You've got to realize in the first century, they didn't have full-length, perfect mirrors like all of us got in our bathrooms and kitchens and everywhere around our houses. A mirror at this point in time was probably copper, polished copper, maybe bronze. If you were going to look into a mirror, you had to look really carefully to see what was there. You couldn't just glance into it. You had to gaze into the mirror. Mirrors were often dim or at least warped in some kind of way. Looking into the mirror is, is more of a gaze than it is a glance. Because to see what's really there, you have to take a closer look at your heart. You have to take a look at the things that you don't want to deal with. The Word is not only a telescope for the heavens, it is a microscope for your heart. It sees things that are far off, and it sees the close things that are right down there, rooted because of all the time that we lived as sinners apart from the will of God. I want you to hang on to your place in James and and turn to Psalm chapter 19. I just want to read this passage. Psalm 19 is all about God's word. Someday we'll, we'll go through this psalm together. It's packed. Psalm 19, look down at verse 7. The psalmist writes here, the law of the Lord is perfect. That sounds like a phrase right out of James, right? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, and I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. John Calvin wrote a Magna Carta that he has contributed to the Protestant faith coming out of the Reformation. It's called the Institutes of Christian Religion. And he began his institutes by saying this. He said, nearly all wisdom we possess has two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. Calvin wasn't interested in knowledge of self in terms of personality tests, getting to know ourselves like we might even study today for the sake of self-awareness. Calvin was interested in knowledge of self because he was interested in knowledge of God. He said things like this in the Institutes, no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God. There was always a back and forth with Calvin. I'm looking to God to understand and learn more about him, and every time I do that, I look back to myself and I learn more about myself. I look to God, I look to self. I look to God, I look to self. I see God as super, super high. I see myself as a sinner in desperate need for his grace. That's the whole premise of the Institutes. That's where he starts, that's where he finishes. Every time he looks into the word of God, it reveals something more about what needs to go out of his own heart. That's exactly how it should be for Christians. 
He says things like this, for we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright, wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us. Unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. C.S. Lewis said the same thing. If you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself, unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you don't know God at all. When we look to God's word, not only do we get a clear picture of who he is, but we also get a steady and ready picture of who we are apart from him. We are consistently reminded of how much we need God on a daily basis. God's word is there for us to help us grow. It keeps us humble when we accept it humbly, when we examine ourselves consistently in the word of God. Number three, James calls us to apply the word compassionately. Apply the word compassionately. Look down at the last two verses in chapter one. If anyone thinks, so we're back in James now. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the, word, from the world. Typically when you read the Bible, especially the Gospels, you conclude that Christianity is not a religion. It's actually a relationship. The most religious were the Pharisees in the Bible, and we know that Jesus was pretty harsh with them pretty strong against their religiosity, their legalism. Typically, when we read religion in the New Testament, it comes from a negative connotation instead of a positive. This is one of the very few instances where religion, the word religion, is used in a positive, in a very encouraging sense. ESV says this, if anyone thinks he is religious. Now, that word for think is the Greek word dokeo. Uh, You'd probably read this if anyone seems to be religious, if anyone appears to be religious. What you have here is a test. Abraham Lincoln was, was really famous for saying, uh, nearly all men can handle adversity. If you really want to test a man, you give him success, right? James is giving us a test here. Are we truly religious? Are we truly devoted to God more than we're devoted to anything else? Anyone can seem religious. If you want to test them, here's the test. Listen to what they say. Listen to the words that are coming out of their mouth. Jesus reminds us that it's not what goes into, it's not what's outside of the body that defiles us. It's what comes out of our body that defiles us. It's out of the mouth that the heart is revealed. Verse 26 is worthless religion. Verse 27 is pure religion. Verse 26 is a worshiper who is not right in the sight of God. Verse 27 is a worshiper who is right in the sight of God. There's a comparison here. James wants us to have a true, authentic devotion and purity before God. And the best way that you're going to see that is the person who bridles his tongue. Pure religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That that word for visit there is not only showing up and being by them, it's actually caring for them. 
It's going the extra step. It's doing the extra deed to show compassionate care to the least deserving, to those who cannot help themselves. For James, meeting the needs of the poor and needy is not peripheral, it is not optional, it is essential for a Christian, and it is essential for true religion. Let's apply, uh, let's apply this text and, and wrap it up so you guys can go home and take your steel-toed boots off there, Travis. I was kind of wondering, it looked like you were gonna go fishing. Man, they kind of look like waders up here. Those are, good. Those are good boots, though, man. They look good. Glad you brought them. James tells us we apply this text, number one is, is this. To receive the implanted word is not a command to be converted. It's a mandate to be mature as a Christian. When we receive the implanted word within us, it's not a command to be converted. It's a mandate for the mature. James is not speaking to unbelievers in the context here. He's talking to Christians. James 1:21 says the implanted word is able to save our souls. That's an aorist infinitive. What he's doing is he's taking a look at the Christian life from beginning to end. He's taking a step back or above. He's given you a 30,000-foot view of the Christian life from start to finish. And if you receive the implanted word within you, you will be saved from a thousand lesser deaths and lesser evils. God's word is continually, always able to save us in every aspect of our being. It saves our spiritual life, our emotional life, our physical life, our relationship with God hinges on how we apply and are directed by his word on a daily basis. One of James' main points is that the word of the gospel is not something to be read, accept, and move on from, but the thing that keeps us moving in the Christian life. In the Pilgrim's Progress, an old account by John Bunyan, there's a, a great story about Christian. Uh, Christian has decided that he wants to leave the city of destruction and head for the celestial city. He just doesn't know how to get there, right? And so he meets somebody on the journey called Evangelist. An evangelist sees that his heart is just wrenched and he is in pain, not knowing how to make it to the celestial city. He comes along, along and he points him in the right direction. He said, if you want to go to the, to the gates of the celestial city, you cross that broad field. It's over there where you see a faint light shining in the distance. So Christian takes up and starts running across the field as fast as he can. One of the very first people to meet him as he is running is his wife and children. And they're yelling at Christian, please don't leave us, don't abandon us, don't run away from us. Christian puts his fingers in his ears and he screams out, life, life, everlasting life. It's a call to his family to follow him to the celestial city. He's not leaving or abandoning them. He's calling them to come alongside with him. Evangelist points him in a far direction, across a broad field, for a life that is eternal, not temporary. Significant, not insignificant. He doesn't look back. He goes forward, listening to the words of life. If you're going to be an authentic Christian, here's what you must do. You must hear the words of the world and stick your fingers in your ears and turn away from them and don't look back. Instead, you run forward toward the celestial city and you say to yourself, life, life, everlasting life. 
In the words of scripture, guess what you have? Life. You have the content of what that life looks like. You have the message of everlasting life through the gospel. It's a message that not only saves you and brings you into the Christian life, it is a message that sustains you through it. The gospel is not something we move on from. It is a message that continually saves as we walk this world, navigate the difficulties of this world and this life. Number two, approach God's word like a heart surgeon, not a plastic surgeon. Approach God's word like a heart surgeon, not a plastic surgeon. The physical mirrors reflect what's on the outside. Scripture is the mirror that reflects what's on the inside. Personally, the times that are most difficult for me are not when I discover the darkness of the fallen world around me. The times that are the most difficult for me are me seeing the reality of the sin that God has yet to deal with in my heart that I haven't seen before. The guys who know their Bible the best are typically those who practice grace the most. The guys who know Scripture the best are those who practice grace the most, and there's a reason why. Because every time they see the character of God, they look back to themselves. And they see how much they don't measure up to it. They know how much they need grace and mercy on a daily basis from the almighty, infinite God. Calvin would say that there is a regular and distinct interchange between knowing who God is and understanding who you are. But if one of them is more important than the other, the one that must take priority is knowing God. Calvin said, know God, know yourself. Know yourself to know your need for God. Know God to know that you're not God. <laughs> Luke 18 Jesus told a parable to those who thought they were righteous and trusted in themselves for salvation. He compares two men, a Pharisee and a publican. A Pharisee is saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, not as sinful, not as dirty as they are. I don't do the same sinful things that they do. I'm thankful that I'm righteous because of my own actions and because of who I am. The publican, on the other hand, gives the sh one of the shortest but most powerful prayers in all of Scripture, and it's how I want to end this sermon this morning. Unwilling to even look up to God, he pounds on his chest and he says, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. The word of God is a constant reminder to us it reminds, reminds us how much different we are than the all-holy, all-perfect God. It tells us how desperately we need the grace and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ on a daily basis. And so we look to the word of God as a mirror and we pray that same prayer, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And God finds us at the very same time, simul ustus et peccator, Simultaneously sinful, yet righteous because of Christ and his work on the cross for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we will never, ever exhaust your word at Tulsa Bible Church. We will never get to a point where we've read enough of the scriptures and we're, we're past that now. We've got it figured out. We will never look at James the same way that we did yesterday. 
We can read the exact same passage of scripture in the morning and see it differently at night because it has the power to work in our hearts and our lives like no other text. You have said that your word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we ask for the word to pierce our hearts, to help reveal our hearts to us. Help us to do the hard self-examination of looking in the mirror by looking into your word. Show us who you are. Give us a picture and understanding of your glory that we might see who we are apart from you and how much we desperately need you on a daily basis. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its gift, its life, its light, that we can walk in a very dark, sinful world guided by the truth of your scripture. We pray that it would guide us along the way every step of the journey. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.